Yep, tell them people, Yahweh said, get out the hallway. <laughs> they can do all that after church. The spirit has left the building. All right, last week we looked at, we did something that we don't normally do where we looked at extra biblical literature in the book of Enoch. It's a pseudepigraphal book that, to help us fill in the gaps of what happened with the judgment of the sons of God and humanity where we believe that the sons of God were angels that had sex with human beings, with women, creating an offspring called the Nephilim. So we looked at that in detail last week. We saw why Enoch and Jude, or Enoch, Peter, and Jude are referring to Enoch. Well, there were a ton of questions that came in, way more questions than there was time. And so we thought that today, to, to begin this last sort of message, sort of cleaning up the rest of what we need to know about the flood and the judgment and all those things, that to start off, we would do it by answering a couple of those questions. So I haven't, I don't look at these, but Mike thought there were a few questions that would be helpful from last week to begin our time this week, and then we'll jump into the last piece that, for our purposes, that we need to look at today to bring closure to the flood and the Nephilim and all of that happened in that situation. So, Mike, you got the floor, and then we'll go from there. All right. Uh the first question is, why do you think that Enoch wasn't added to the canon in the Bible? I think there's, I mean, there's some, well, there's one main reason. I think because in, in Enoch's account, he has visions of the Messiah, and he nails it down to everything, but then he says the Messiah is Enoch, right? So... So people interpret that as Enoch saying that he is actually the Messiah. I'm not sure if that's actually what Enoch is doing, to be honest. I think Enoch may be speaking to the fact that the Messiah will be like Enoch and that he walks with God. But, you know, I wasn't around to decide what makes the canon and what not and what the criteria was for what goes into what we call the Bible, the canon of Scripture. So there were a couple other things. I think there were some... Uh, confusion about some of the visions of like beasts and things that are in the book and and it's in the order of it it's kind of it jumps around a lot that doesn't happen as as much in what we would consider inspired scripture it jumps around in ways that it just seems like a bunch of stuff was just thrown together so there are things that make sense but then there are things that are like wait a minute what didn't he just say so I think for that purpose they were like nah we're not going to include it and also they don't know who really wrote it so pseudepigraphal books are attributed to a person, like Enoch, but they don't know if he really wrote it because it showed up around 4th century B.C. So they don't really know if Enoch actually wrote it. All right, uh, the next question. Uh, Zeus's backstory uh, with him sleeping with multiple women, um, do you think this is a reference to uh, fallen angels having sex with women? Uh, well, I think the idea is, but Zeus was more of like the Yahweh of Greek mythology. So that it's not, it wasn't the Yahweh, it wasn't a God that, that did that, it were angels. So I think the idea of divine beings having sex with humanity 
definitely comes from that context, the, the reality of the sons of God. I don't know if Zeus himself is, would be greater than the angels for their purposes. So I don't think it's a one-to-one, -one, but I think the idea is, and the kind of Hercules, right? The half man, half he, I think that's 100% comes from that reality. I mean, Greek mythology is, is much later in human civilization. So they definitely took their cues from those narratives. Um, <clears throat> this person asks, um, are demons able to possess people's bodies or minds in modern times? 100%. I don't think that, I mean, I, so if you look at 2 Timothy 2.26, it basically, mm -hmm. it says, I mean, it's not even basically, it says that people have been taken captive to do the devil's will. You go back to Genesis 3, when God cursed the serpent, he said, your offspring will be at odds with her offspring, right? So there's, so again, and then you go to John 8, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, your father is the devil. You are doing his bidding when you're, so all of those things. So you see this, a continuity between, you know, in our modern age, we have this idea that all people are children of God, right? That's not a biblical idea, though. From the beginning, it's clear Satan's going to have offspring and God's going to have offspring, and those two are going to be at odds. So the idea that all people are children of God is one. It's more of a, a, a sociological statement, not a biblical one. But yeah, I think they definitely can possess people. I think they still do. I think often what we call, I think there are people who are in like, you know, insane asylums and stuff like that. I think that, you know, the people who are in those places, a lot of them often like feel like they see God or hearing from God or it's always spiritual. It's always sort of a supernatural thing that they're, they feel like they're talking to God or God told them to do this. Or, so I think that stuff definitely happens. I think a lot of what we put away in society are often people who are been possessed and definitely oppressed by demons. And we'll get to that when we get to the New Testament. We'll talk more about that. Uh, this is, <clears throat> this one's the last one. Um, and um, this person wants your opinion. So when it says that uh, watchers taught about the use of plants, do you think this can be an introduction uh, to mankind on getting high from uh, marijuana, shrooms, and other forms of drugs? Sure. <laughs> I mean, if you, so like, so like the Greek word like pharmakeia, right, is used to describe like, um, it's a word that's, it means entertaining demons, but that word is used in the New Testament to describe, we get the word pharmacy from pharmakeia, right? Medicinal medication and things like that. So there are passages in the New Testament where God is saying, don't, don't, you don't do these things. And the Greek word is pharmakeia, which is connected to an Old Testament word that talks about using of plants and roots and things like that. So the connection in the New Testament is to do that, is to entertain demons. And it makes sense if we think about, well, they were taught how to use plants and roots and things like that. I don't, I don't think they were taught how to use them just to help themselves, but as a distraction to worshiping God. If I can experience some sort of out of mind experienced and that in a sense is is god is is like god i mean i've you know in my old days 
I used mushrooms and all that, and I could have swore I, I found out new things. <laughs> and I did, I just don't teach them on Sunday, right? So again, it's just, you know, those things alter your mind in ways that are not, that are not of the Lord. And so he warns against that. So I, I definitely think that could be a case. But again, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, and the demon and the angels taught people how to get high. You know, it's not like they were like rolling blunts and stuff or like not nah, doing like. So there's a lot of stuff. But I do think the implication of that stuff is, is true. All right, so that was the last one for this week. All right. And on October 16th, I did a message called What is the Bible? And in that message, I explained, I introduced you to a Dutch theologian named James Usher, who was born in 1581, and he wrote a book, a huge book, called The Annals of the World. And in this book, he had a scientific strategy that dated the world and all the events of the world leading up at least until his day. He, and again, these numbers are not what's important whether he's right or not, but there is some agreeable continuity in the time span between these numbers, whether it's what he said, that world was created in 4000 BC or not, there is a considerable consistent time frame that many people have accepted to be true. And in that message, I told you that he said that 4004 BC was the creation of the world. So the what I just alluded to, the Genesis 3.15, cursed against Satan, would sometime be around that time period, 4004 B.C. He has Seth, who is the son born after Cain kills Abel, born at 3,874 B.C. And during that time, it said this in Genesis 4, beginning of verse 25, it says this, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what's important about that is as far back as 3874 B.C., people started to call on the name of the Lord. Now, we don't have any indication if there were other gods that people were calling on, but there were people, at least according to Genesis, that were calling on the name of the Lord. So who God is, worshiping God, what God desires, all these things are prevalent in people who were starting to worship God. In 2948 B.C., Noah was born. In 2349 B.C., Noah built the ark. And right after that, the flood came. Two years later was the Tower of Babel in 2247. We will tackle the Tower of Babel next in the series and the significance of what happened there, both natural and supernatural. 2247 is the Tower of Babel, and then in 1922, God calls Abraham. So 325 years after the Tower of Babel, which on the natural level, we know that other civilizations were established. 
There were one people, God confused the language, and then everyone went wherever they could with people whom they could understand, and then all these civilizations were established. By those establishments of civilizations, we have different philosophies of the world. These weren't all worshiping Yahweh. So 325 years after the Tower of Babel, God calls Abraham and decides, I'm going to establish a people through Abraham. 100%. I like when Jesus said a child shall praise, right? Child shall lead them. All right. In 1491 B.C., the Ten Commandments were written. 1491. This means it's 750 years after the flood where angels were teaching people how to worship stars and astrology and other gods. 750 years later, God decides to give his own narrative. That's 2,383 years away from Genesis 4:25, saying that people were calling on the name of the Lord. So over 2,000, almost 2,500 years before God decides, let me explain and give my version of the narrative. At that point, there were so many versions of creation that it all had their own stories and the Israelites were inundated with many of them, but particularly the Egyptian narratives because that's who they were slaves of for 400 years. So when God is writing the Pentateuch, the first five books that he has Moses write, and he's beginning in Genesis, God is explaining to them this is what happened. But they already had an idea of what happened because God waited so long to tell his narrative even though people were calling on the name of the Lord from the beginning. So why did God wait so long to describe what really happened? Why did he let those other stories come out before his? Well, I said in that message that God wasn't interested in being the first narrative. He was interested in being the accurate narrative. And that while the Bible is 100% the word of God, from a supernatural perspective, we have to see the Bible as a competitive clarification of reality. God is not necessarily changing the narrative that the Israelites understood from the Egyptians, but he's telling them, no, 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 wrong people, wrong God. But some of the situations are the same. The Bible is a competitive presentation of truth. God is competing with the other gods. And I cannot prove this, but I think God was like, go ahead and get your narratives out there. I'm going to give you a head start, hundreds of years of getting your, almost a thousand years before I say anything. Go ahead and get your narrative out there because when my narrative comes, it's going to change the world. When your narrative comes, it'll create some civilizations that people will forget about a couple hundred years later. Many of us wouldn't even know these other narratives exist because they didn't have longevity. But when God's narrative exists, it changed the world. This is an alpha and omega move. So if the Bible is a, comp a competitive clarification of reality, 
then who was God competing with when he wrote the narratives in Genesis, particularly Genesis 6? What's he competing with? Well, Mesopotamia is the region, that's the Old Testament way of describing what we would call the Middle East. What we would call the Middle East back then was called Mesopotamia. And the context of Mesopotamia, there were narratives that were first. The Sumerian narrative was out way before Moses' narrative. Here's the Sumerian narrative in essence. In Mesopotamian religion, the term Apkalu is used for the legendary creatures endowed with extraordinary wisdom. Seven in number, they are the culture heroes from before the flood. In the myth of the 21 postuses, the seven Apkalu of Eridu, who are also called the seven Apkalu of Apsu, are the sources of Ea Enki, their god. A variety of wisdom traditions from the antediluvian period, that means the before the flood, were supposedly passed on by the Apkalu. The tradition of the Apkalu is preserved in a bit Misery ritual series and also by Barosis. The seven sages were created in the river and served as those who ensued the correct functioning of the plans of heaven and earth. Following the example of Ea, they taught mankind wisdom, social forms, and craftsmanship. The author of texts dealing with omens, magic, and other categories of wisdom such as medicine, is attributed to the seven Apkalu. So the Apkalu in the Mesopotamian is what we call the sons of God. And they do the same thing. They came to earth. They taught mankind wisdom, social forms, craftsmanship, omens, magic, and medicine. There was a broad tradition in the Babylonian social scribble milu that the seventh antediluvian figure, a king or a sage, ascended to heaven and received insights into divine wisdom. Who does that sound like? Enoch. It's Enoch. The seventh antediluvian king, according to several lists, was named Emaduranki, the king of Sippar, who distinguished himself with divine knowledge from the gods, Adad and Shamash. Biblical scholars generally agree that the religious historical background of the figure Enoch, the seventh antediluvian patriarch in Genesis 5, is who the Mesopotamian antediluvian king Emadaronku is compared to. So understand that this narrative of the god Emadaronki and the Apkalu was out before the Moses narrative. So they would have understood the creation, many civilizations in the, in the same region of Egypt where Mesopotamia is, that the gods, Adad and Shamash and Ea, are the ones responsible for the creation of the Apkalu who go to humanity and somewhat corrupt it. Jude 14 notes that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Enoch was the father of Methuselah and the great-grandfather of Noah in Genesis 5, 21-30. Enoch was the first to be taken to heaven, joining God in the divine council as a man, Genesis 5, 24. The correlation with Emaduraku is interesting 
because of how the Mesopotamian stories regard the transmission of divine knowledge. So here, the narrative that they have is that Emma Duranku was Enoch. He was taken to heaven. He was the seventh king. Enoch is the seventh. When you look at the generation in Genesis 5, it's a one-to-one story. But this came way before Moses wrote his account. Here's what Mike Heiser, theologian, says about, about this. He says, this is the nature of polemic argumentation, which Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines. I'm sorry, I missed one point. More broadly, the Mesopotamian Apkalu saga provides something biblical scholars have so long sought, a rationale for why Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is even in the book of Genesis at all. The purpose was not to tell us about the godly human line of Seth. That interpretation is not only wholly ignorant of the original religious context, but violates it at every turn. Rather, the reason Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is in the Bible is because the writer, Moses, sought to target the deeply held religious beliefs of Mesopotamia and most pointedly, the myth of Babylonian superiority. So this is what he's saying. The whole purpose of Moses, on behalf of God, is writing, wrote Genesis 6, was to expose the lies of the Mesopotamian, in particular Babylonian, religion. They have the same stories. God is clarifying. No, 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 no. There's no Apkalu. There's no Adad and Shamas. There's no Emmer Duranki. There's me, angels, Nephilim, and Enoch. God wants his people to know, no, 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 no. That's not the real story. Now to where I was. This is the nature of polemic argumentation, which Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines as an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. In other words, they're saying essentially what I've been saying is that God is competing and clarifying reality with his definition. Amar Annas, in 2010, in the Journal of the Study of the Pseudepigrapha, wrote an article entitled on the origin of the Watchers, a competitive study of the antediluvian wisdom in Mesopotamian Jewish traditions. I'll give it to you if you're interested, but I know you're not. Here's what he wrote, intense study, scholarly study review. Here's what he wrote about Genesis 1 through 4, the sin of the Watchers and Enoch. It says, various accounts of the antediluvian history in the ancient Mesopotamian and Second Temple Jewish sources should be regarded as results of ancient debates. Not only direct borrowings took place, but also creative reinterpretations, especially on the Jewish side. Some of these creative reinterpretations must have occurred as deliberate inversions of the Mesopotamian source material. The Jewish authors often inverted, flipped upside down, the Mesopotamian intellectual traditions with the intention of showing the superiority of their own cultural foundations. 
In other words, in other words, that the Jewish writers, Moses and so forth, wrote Genesis and other, using the narratives of the Babylonians and other stories, reinterpreting them through the accurate biblical lens to show superiority in the cultural foundations and to show consistency. Because the Bible, there's a consistent theme where many of these other religions and their writings, you have to dig deep to find them. Why am I saying this? Why is this important for us? Curry, you didn't read but one verse. Here's why this is important. Because in this day and age, today, right now, there are people who use the fact that because the Bible wasn't the original narrative, it's not true. They would say, in some cases, rightly so, that the Bible got its information from other Mesopotamian religions, the same stories that happened way before. They just changed the name. I know of, and if I said some of the names of the people, you would know some of the people who have actually walked away from Christianity because the Bible is not the original narrative of what happened. And you could hear that and be like, oh my gosh, that's true, that's right. This was written way before and it's almost the same thing. You could hear that and think, well, what if my Bible's not true and it's just a copy of this? And that would be an understandable connection unless you understand what the Bible is. God had no intention of writing his narrative first. And if we're being honest, if people really believe that the original story is the true one, then those folks would be believe in the Sumerian gods. But they often don't. They just say, well, I reject the Bible. So this isn't about truth. It's about not wanting to submit to the truth. But I want you all to hear this because this is true. The Bible is not the first narrative. But it doesn't have to be. Is it true? I can come up and tell you a story, and that doesn't make it true. And someone else could come up and be like, oh, actually, that's not what happened. Here's what happened. We have a court of law based on that. We got two different narratives. What do the facts say? And then people make a determination on that. This is the way we live as people. But there are people who will use the fact that the Bible, because they don't understand what God is doing. They don't have the supernatural reality in mind that God is competing with these other narratives intentionally. And the fact that the narrative of God still exists and is alive and prevalent today in these other religious narratives, you have to find these joints. I to, I'm looking, I'm searching far and wide to find stuff so I can tell y'all. These aren't easily accessible unless you go on YouTube and then you can find anything on YouTube. And then you don't know what's going on on YouTube because you got, you want people that want likes and clicks and all that's clickbait. Oh, the Nephilim have been spotted again. And you watching it's like, well, technically we can't find where they are, but. Oh, I'm not just wasting 11, and 17, 11 minutes and 17 seconds of my life. I just read the comment section. Whenever I see this, like, let me just, as soon as I see, like, oh, man, this isn't true. He said, okay, thank you, brother. You saved me 11 minutes of my time. But I know those things are fake, but I always want to see how do you even come to that conclusion, right? The Bible is not the first narrative. It's the true narrative. And God is competing with other narratives that are using the same thing because he allowed those narratives to exist first. They're not true. God is just like, I don't care. 
All right, second thing we need to pay attention to is this. Have you ever asked the question after reading this, Genesis 6, beginning in verse 16? Here's what God says, talking to Noah. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, we're so familiar with this story that sometimes we don't even ask the question like this. Why would he destroy the world by water? Why did God destroy the world by water? He could have done anything. Could have had earthquakes, just open the ground up, swallow people up. Could have had people just drop dead. Why does he destroy the world by water? Now keep in mind that God is intentional. I don't think, you know how even the world says everything happens for a reason, right? That's their way of saying the universe is intentional. Nothing is random. God is intentional. So why destroy the world by water? What is he trying to communicate? Now, God doesn't answer this question directly, but we can come to some conclusions based upon what we do know. Why destruction by water? out of all the ways that God could have. Remember, he's intentional. He has a reason for everything. Here's the first reason that we should consider what we just talked about. In the ancient Near East, chaos and disorder, which you heard me talk about this in the Genesis 1, uh, uh, the first one on the, the light. Chaos and, is often associated, and disorder are often associated with large bodies of water. Right, large bodies of water, which we, they call seas, we call them oceans. Oceans is not in any real translation, it's a paraphrase. If you have a Bible that says in the ocean, no, the Bible describes big bodies of water as seas. In the ancient Near East, chaos and disorder are often associated with that. All right? So the, the reason being is that in non-biblical creation accounts, the sea or the deep, right? Sometimes it's called the deep. Genesis 1, he's hovering. His spirit hovers over the deep. It just means the water, the sea. Non-biblical accounts of the sea are characterized by a multitude of sea gods. So depending on what religion you're looking at, they're either gods that came out of that sea, they're gods trying to destroy the sea, or, or people see the sea as a god in all of them. They vary. But the sea is a god. They call it primeval, right, the primeval waters. The sea is a god. Gods come from the sea, or there are gods trying to destroy the sea because it's a rival god. That's the way other religions process big bodies of water. You can find it in Kemetic, which is Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, all these religious philosophies of the ancient Near East all have gods. I've looked at so many of their creation stories. 
and they're crazy. But all of them have the C as central. Because water existed before a lot of these civilizations, many of their creation stories see water as a powerful deity or the place in which gods created themselves. So Yahweh decides, I'm going to destroy the world by water. What is he saying? By using water to bring judgment to the world, remember, he's writing a narrative to his people competing with the narratives of other civilizations. By using water to bring judgment, Yahweh is demonstrating his superiority over all the gods who claim to be from the water or who see the water itself as a god. It's God's way of saying, your gods are beneath me. I can use your gods to do my bidding. They work for me. I can tell your gods, the gods that you fear, the gods that come out of the water, the god that is water, works for me. I am an authority over the gods that you fear, the gods that you fear. This is a bold statement. But that's not the main reason why God uses water to execute judgment. There's a more supernatural reason than that. In 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 18, here's what Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is 1 Peter 3. There are three main interpretations of this, these verses. The first is that people believe that between his death and resurrection, Jesus went and preached to the dead that were in Hades, the realm of the dead. This would be the view of many of the early church fathers, that Jesus, after he died, went and preached to the people who were in Hades, preached the gospel to them. Second interpretation that many people have is that Christ preached through Noah to people in Noah's day. And that's the view of many of the reformers, Calvin and Luther and people of that sort. And the third interpretation is that before, or more likely after his resurrection, Jesus proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels. And this is the view of most scholars today. And here's why they say that. In early church literature, spirits 
nearly refers to angelic spirits rather than human spirits, except when explicit statements are made to the contrary. The grammar here most naturally reads as if, in the spirit who raised them, he preached to them the spirits after his resurrection. These are the three interpretations. And I agree with the third one, the scholarly view, because I want to be seen as a scholar. I don't agree with it because of the reasons why they agree with it, though. I have a different reason why I agree with it that you'll see there's textual and supernatural reasons to believe that what Peter is talking about is that Jesus went and preached to the rebellious spirits who disobeyed in the days of Noah. He wasn't preaching to people the gospel. He was preaching to spirits. This is why it says that he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There's two connections in this scene back to the flood. One, Jesus goes and preaches to the spirits in prison. We know that from Genesis and Enoch that there was punishment against spirits. The other connection is baptism is established as an event that looks back to the flood. Peter says baptism, which corresponds to, it corresponds to what? People brought safely through water. So Jesus goes and preaches the spirits in prison, and baptism is established as the event that looks back to the flood. These are the two things that we get from reading the passage. So textually, Enoch, Jude, and Peter all indicate that spirits are in prison, and they're angels, and they're offspring, right? These verses, 1 Peter, are making a statement about spiritual beings under the authority of Christ because of what he did in human form. See, because God loves, we think like, oh, he went back to the Old Testament and preached the gospel to them. But we can look at passages like Galatians 3 that say that the, 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 the Spirit preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, right? Before Abraham understood what it fully meant, he was given the good news. God doesn't have to go back and preach to them because these people already believed the promises of God without knowing it. 1 Peter 1 says that they were inquiring about who is this person that we're writing about. And they were told it's not for you to know. It's for the people you're writing to in the future to know. We see this all over the Bible. There's no reason for Jesus to go back and speak to people because the people from the Old Testament who believed God essentially believed the gospel, essentially believed in Jesus. He doesn't have to go back and be like, hey, they already are with God. These verses are saying that Jesus is going to speak to the spirits who rebelled in the days of Noah. So why would he do that? Why would he do that? And then why would it say he was at the right hand of God when subject with these why does he have to go back and say anything to them? What makes this challenging for us is that we often see Jesus as always having been an authority over spirits, angels. He created them. He created them. Jesus has always been that way. So we think when it says things about Jesus after the crucifixion that it's describing who he's always been. But here's the thing. In the eternal world, sure, that's who Jesus was, and they understand that. 
But Jesus became a human being. He became a human being. We're so used to that, we can forget the significance of what's happening here. When Jesus became a human being, he didn't just appear as a man in the world like angels do. They show up as humans and then they go back. Jesus is born as a man, grows up in the world, and he submits himself to the limitations of humanity. The God who created everything, who needs nothing, has to sleep. He gets tired. He's hungry. He had to be potty trained. All of it. He submitted to the limitations of humanity and then said, okay, I know I'm God, but I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to weaken myself. I'm going to condescend to being a human being and then take your best shot. So I'm not going to battle you as God on the throne that you know of. I'm going to battle you as a human being who limits himself from being God in the way that I could be. And I'm going to take your best shot. This is what's happening. Jesus is fully God, but he says, in his human body, I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to be subjected to seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks like you. I'm going I'm, I'm to feel physical pain. I'm going to eat. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to cry. All the things that God in the throne, Jesus would never do. But as a human being, okay, this is the best shot you got to overthrow me. This is your best shot, evil, Satan. This is your best shot. In fact, I'm going to fast for 40 days so that I'm as weak as I can be and go into the wilderness and take on your best shot. And even though I'm starving, I'm going to resist your temptation to turn these stones to bread. Even though I came to bring the kingdoms of God of the world to God, I'm going to resist your temptation to do it easy by bowing before you. I'm going to take your best shot as a human being since you deceived the human beings that I created in my image. So when Jesus goes back to this place, he's going to tell the spirits, you can't beat me in eternity and you can't beat me in humanity. I'm outside. You defeated human beings, so I became a human being to defeat you. This is where we have to, this is where our minds need to grow because we always think of everything about God coming to save us for our sins and we're the, and that's all true. But that's not the only thing that's true about why Jesus came. The incarnation wasn't just to save us from the wrath for our sins, it was to take on the fullness of the cosmic powers of darkness and show them that even when God limits himself to the frailties of humanity, they still can't beat him. They're too small. This is what Jesus is proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Not only did I forgive humanity, I did it by becoming one of them, but I will never forgive you. So I'm going to forgive them, but you will never be forgiven. 
He's telling them, remember what God, what we told Satan in Genesis 3.15? Here I am. Took on your best shot. And you thought by killing me you accomplished something until I came back from the dead. This is what he's preaching. This is why the scripture says he went and sat on the throne of God where the angels, powers, and authorities are subject to him. Why would that even matter? They've always been subject, right? But not as a human being, though. Now he did it as a human being. So now, on earth and in heaven, I rule you. You can't defeat me. And guess what? The people that I believe in me, I'm going to put a supernatural deposit in them of my spirit, and you can't beat them either. This is why he said, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. This is the textual implication of this. But there's also a supernatural implication of God using water. You have to understand, the institution of baptism is a slap in the face to Satan. You understand that? The institution of baptism, where people are going into the water and coming up, even Jesus did it, right? It's a slap in the face. Here's why. Baptism didn't really start until Jesus came. You have the seed of baptism in the priest who were told in Leviticus, you got to bathe, clean yourself off, and then you put on and do your priestly duties and stuff like that. So there was a, but that wasn't the same thing. That was a priestly responsibility. The next thing you see about baptism is really John, John the Baptist. He's the one, remember who he is, he's the voice of one, he's the forerunner of Jesus. He's preparing people to believe in Jesus. It's John who starts talking about being baptized. In Luke 3, verse 2, it says this, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet. Right? And then he's baptizing with water. And he sees the Pharisees coming and says, you brood of vipers. I'm going to start using that terminology. I mean, you a brood of a viper, man. So baptism is connected to salvation through water. That doesn't mean you have to be baptized to be saved. The thief on the cross wasn't. But baptism, water, is now connected to salvation, where the flood was judgment by water. Keep in mind that Jesus is the living water. Remember in Eden, the water coming from the throne of God to the world? You see in John chapter 4, Jesus telling the woman at the well, if you would ask, I would give you this living water. Right? See in John 19, 34, this is intentional. Remember, God's intentional. Why is this seen in the Bible? The Roman soldier puts a spear in and it says both water and blood come out, right? Why Why do we need to know water comes out? You get to Revelation 22, 1, and again, water is coming from the Lamb of God, the throne of the Lamb of God. Keep in mind, Jesus is the living water. If you think about the flood, the rebellion of divine beings caused judgment on the whole world via water. 
the rebellion of human beings caused judgment on the living water for the whole world. You get what I'm saying? God took the means in which he punished the angels through water and turned it into the means that leads to salvation for people. But even in the days of Noah. See, one way to look at Noah is the judgment of the world. But the other way to look at it is the salvation of the world. Because he saved Noah, and then Noah, from Noah and his son, the world would again be saved. So judgment and salvation are happening at the same exact time by the same God. God said he would never punish the world with water because of our sin. So instead, he punishes the living water for the sins of the world. The Genesis flood wasn't just judgment. It was at the same time the salvation of the whole world. This is important. Do you know all the major scenes in Scripture show God bringing judgment? All the major salvation scenes show God bringing judgment through water while bringing salvation at the same time. The flood. Judgment, Noah saved. The Exodus, Red Sea. The judgment against Egypt, Israel saved. Right? The cross, judgment, salvation. Happening at the same time by the same God on the same cross. In the flood, God uses water to bring death. On the cross, God judges water to bring life. And now water, baptism, is connected to eternal life. So God takes the means in which he punished the angels and now connects it to the means in which salvation comes to humanity. This is fascinating when you think about all the ways that Jesus and God could have done anything. God doesn't even change a lot of stuff. He just flips it for his glory. So the it's funny. I will tell no, I will no longer punish the world. I'll use a bow, a rainbow, will be my reminder to never punish the world by sin. So what he does on the cross is he takes that bow, turns it into an arrow, and punishes the living water for our sin. And then says, believe in him, and you're saved. The supernatural implications of God using water are shaming the angels who rebelled and the cosmic powers of evil. So when God, he goes to prison to preach to those spirits, I did it as a human being, you couldn't defeat me. And then the means in which I destroyed you, I used to punish myself. I'm the living water. And I was punished so that they could drink from me. The reason why we'll never be punished by the flood again, despite movies like 2012 and all these other, <laughs> is because God punished the living water. And now we're baptized, not to be saved, but as connected to 
our salvation. We go under the water, immersing, and we come up. Saved, connected to salvation like Noah. In the water, comes out. Lastly, in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, God establishes a almost identical covenant with Adam. The one caveat in verses 4 through 6. Everything God says is pretty much what he said to Noah, what he said to Adam, but there's one caveat in 4 through 6, Genesis 9. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. All right, this is a caveat from the Adamic covenant, which is a direct result of the actions of the Nephilim in humanity. Murder, killing, eating blood, drinking blood. So you have this caveat. But then at the end of chapter 9, we have one of the strangest scenes in the Bible in another heavily debated term, a heavily debated scene, which actually plays a significant role in a major storyline of the Old Testament leading to Jesus. In chapter 9, verse 18, we read this. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Ham, and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. There is much speculation as to what this means. The most common narrative is that Noah saw his father naked, told his brothers, and they went and covered him, and then Noah, his dad, cursed Ham's son. You guys should know the story. Noah's the dad, Ham is the son. Ham saw his father's nakedness. Most people think he saw him naked. Noah was drunk, naked. Ham saw him, came out, made fun of him to his brothers. His brothers walked in backwards, put a sheet over his body. And then when Noah woke up, he found out what Ham did, and he cursed Ham's son, which is his grandson. This is the most popular narrative. Or they think there was some homosexual act that Ham did with his dad. And that's kind of the reality. This is what people think. There's another interpretation that I think is more realistic. It's that what Ham did was Ham actually had sex with his mom 
and then, and then is cursed, the offspring of his mom and, him and his son is Canaan. I think that's the more accurate narrative. And let me explain why. In Leviticus 18, here's what it says, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they say in the land of Egypt. Where you lived, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Then he says this, and it goes on to describe using this terminology, uncovering the nakedness, in a lot of Leviticus 18. Then he says this in Leviticus 20, beginning in verse 10, using the same language. He says this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So here's what I think happened. Ham went into his dad Noah's tent. Right? His mom's there. That's where they live. That's her, their tent. Went into the tent, slept with his mom, came out, told his brothers about it. They went in and pulled out a sheet and covered their mother's body. They didn't want to see their mom naked. They covered their mom's body. Noah finds out what happened, and he curses his grandson, Canaan, not Ham. Despite the fact that people have used a thing called the curse of Ham as justification of slavery towards black people, it shows that they don't know their Bibles because Ham didn't get cursed. It's the curse of Canaan. But that's a different, we'll hit that next, next year in Black History Month. He curses his grandson, Canaan, not Ham. Why does he do that? I think Canaan is the offspring of the incestual sex act that Ham had with his mother. And here are three reasons why I believe this. One, the continuity of the author. Remember, Moses is writing this. Right? Moses is only one person that we know of writing this. Moses is writing this, and so there's continuity of the narrative that Moses is trying to tell. This all connects to a larger theme of what's happening in the Bible and why things continue to persist. Some we've seen, some we're going to see in the next few weeks. There's a continuity of Moses in the way that he's describing these narratives. There's also the second reason, the continuity of the language. The same author who wrote Leviticus 18, 20, verse 11, if a man lies with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's nakedness, it's the same author who wrote Genesis 9. It's the same author. Now, keep in mind that Moses is trying to teach them a coherent narrative to understand why the world is what it is and, and competing with the other narratives that have been told. So Moses isn't in, you would imagine, and again, I'm not, you know, can't ask him, right? 
But there would be no reason for Moses to use language over here that would confuse what it means over here. It's the same author. He's using the same language to convey the same action. So there's a continuity of the author of Moses. There's a continuity of the language that he's using. There's no other place where this is really used outside of a forbidden sexual act. And here in Leviticus, so if, you, if you lie with your father's wife, you've uncovered his nakedness. Now, we don't talk like that, but remember, this isn't written to us. We benefit from it, but this wasn't written to us. We don't talk like that. Nakedness to us means we don't have no clothes on. But it means something different to them. It's kind of like an idiom. It's like if you say, there might be 200 years from now, someone may read something and someone says, man, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. Now, you could take that to mean, wow, these people just go around and kill horses and just eat them? You could take it to mean that, like, man, I would have hated to have been a horse back then. All these glue factories around. Like, you could say that, right? Or would you understand the language, you realize they're saying not literally they're eating, they're just hungry. They're that hungry, but no one's real. I, I don't know, I don't even know if people eat horse meat, except for lions and stuff. If you ever had horse meat, I don't, I don't want to know about it. I don't even know. I'm just, I would just, it was a statement. It was a, here's the third reason why the continuity of the actions of the Canaanites. Remember what God said in Leviticus 18, right? I think what's happening is Noah's giving a prophetic judgment against Canaan because the Canaanites would create and continue the practice. Canaan is the outcome of a forbidden sexual practice, and the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, would continue in the same ways. So in Leviticus 18, this is what God says in verse 3. He says this, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules. You shall keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then he goes in the don't see other uncover people's nakedness. So he attaches what they did in Egypt, what they do in Canaan, the land that they're going to, and saying these are the sexual practices that they do. Everything I'm telling you from here on out is to not do what they do. So he's attributing what Canaan is, what he represents, and the land that they're going to where the Canaanites are is don't do what they do. They're into ancestral sexual practices that I forbid. And the language is uncovering nakedness. Don't do it. Unless you're married, then uncover the nakedness of your wife. But if you're not, don't do it. There's continuity here. But then there's a supernatural significance of Noah's curse. This is why I think it's prophetic. Here's what Noah says in 927. He says it's at the end of his curse of Canaan. He's talking to his son, Ham. He says this, May God enlarge, enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay? This is a prophetic statement. Here's why. Shem, Shem became the Jews. That's where Semites come from, Shem, Shemites. Shem became the Jews. Japheth becomes the Gentiles. And guess what the Gentiles do? They dwell in the tents of Shem. Salvation is from the Jews. 
This is what Jesus was telling the woman at the well. Mm, you got it wrong. We know who God is, and salvation is coming from us. The whole, Paul's main theology in the New Testament is that the Gentiles have been included into the plan of salvation with the Jews. And Paul in Ephesians 3 calls this the greatest mystery. His great, Paul said this. Look at Ephesians 3. Not right now, but when you get a chance. Look at I know how some of y'all do. Let me open it real quick. Be patient. We almost done, right? Ephesians 3, Paul, called, Paul makes it seem like the Gentiles being included in salvation is the greatest mystery. Not Jesus becoming God and human being, but the Gentiles becoming a part of the plan of salvation. Because when you trace the lines, Japheth, who was the brother of Shem, who helped Shem cover, I think, his mother's naked body after the sexual act, is blessed so when salvation comes through the Shemites, Semites, Jews, Japheth, the descendants of Japheth, Gentiles, will be included, and we will be under the tent. This is a prophetic statement. Canaan represents evil. And it's not that no one will be saved in those lands. God is that merciful. But Canaan is a person that becomes a people that in light of what happens in Babel becomes the second greatest storyline in the Bible after God become a human being. And you guys know what it is. It's what we're going to talk about in the next <laughs> message when we get to the Tower of Babel. But what this means, what Canaan represents, is the second greatest storyline in the Bible apart from God becoming a human being. So this scene is very significant. Very significant. Let's close. Fathers, we come to an end of Genesis and all that we've learned. Lord, may what we've learned affect us in such a way that we're excited about learning our Bibles and reading. And we no longer see these stories of places and weird long names as just something that we're uninterested in. But there may be you describing things that we just never saw before. So I pray that you would protect us from wild speculations just to feel good. We're not trying to make insights for nothing. We're trying to make insights that help us understand and appreciate your word more. Where that's true, Lord, where anything I said today that's true to that, then may it be embedded in the minds and hearts of all those who are listening. Where what I said is not true, then may they forget it because it has no lasting fruit. But Lord, your word is incredible and there's so much here. We haven't even gotten to the Tower of Babel yet. We haven't even gotten to the plagues in Egypt yet. We haven't even gotten to a number of things that you just are doing incredible things in your word. We know them on the natural level, but Lord, help us understand them on the supernatural level so that we function as supernatural, with a supernatural ideology in the natural world for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we have a few questions. Remember, if you have any, you should text those to 240-623-8076. Um, and uh, we'll start with this one. Um, is Genesis... 9, 18 through 29, forecasting the final salvation of the Jews 
who did not turn to Jesus before their death when Christ returns. I don't, I don't think that's what Genesis is doing. I think it's just, well, particularly the verses that I just read, the Japheth and will be in the tent. And I think what Genesis is doing is just highlighting in seed form, right? We talked a lot about progressive revelation, right? So we don't, you know, God is revealing things in seed form, and then it just grows and grows and grows. And then by the time we get to the Gospels, it's like, oh, it's a tree now. It makes sense, right? I don't think God is speaking that specifically about the Jews in that sense, or Gentiles in that sense, or the Jews returning. I think it's just saying that there will be a plan of salvation in place, and Canaan plays a role in it, but as the sort of evil um, um, proprietor, and Ham and Shem will join together, but Shem will be sort of above Ham and be under. Japheth will be in his tents because salvation is coming from the Jews. I think it's speaking in sort of cryptic, biblically cryptic form of how salvation is going to come about and who's going to benefit from it. All right. Uh, this next question is, um, can Islam be attributed uh, down the line back to Canaan? Uh, it's possible. I mean, Islam is usually attributed to Esau, right? So you got Jacob, who's Israel, and then Esau. So Israel is usually, you go Esau, and then you go to um, Ishmael, right? So it's, it doesn't really connect. Well, I'd say this. Islam connects their birth where they come from to Ishmael. They see themselves as children of Abraham, mm -hmm. right? Worthy of the rights of the Jews. This is why they, they, this is why they hate the Jews in a sense because you know who was Ishmael, right? Abraham's biological son, who was in a sense cast aside for Isaac, right? He's still a biological son, and God even tells Hagar that I will make your son a, a multitude of peoples will come from him that he'll be a wild donkey of a man, right? So you get this, so they trace it back to Ishmael, not necessarily to, to Canaan. But when you look at who came from Canaan, Egypt, Cush, Cushites, that's put, those are all African countries that are, have largely been Islamic in their history, in the world history. But they trace themselves back to Ishmael. This question is, does the fact that the passage in Genesis 9 <clears throat> say that they saw uh, Noah's nakedness as opposed to uncovering it make any difference in interpretation? Say that one more time. Does the fact that uh, the passage in Genesis 9 say that they saw, saw as in quotes, uh, Noah's nakedness as opposed to uncovering it make any difference in, the, in your interpretation? I don't think so. I don't think it does. I think because of the, the, the language, it's, so we have this principle, right, called scripture interprets scripture. So when something doesn't make sense, we try to see where else does scripture use similar or identical language, and, what is, and is it clear there what's it talking about? So I don't think the saw, and I think those are just incidental terms. Well, if you're talking about, uh, yeah, I think they're incidental terms that are describing an act, because 
again and, and then I you know I'm I've studied and looked at the customs of them I don't there's not a lot of customs of the Jews that would that would give credence to this the severity of the judgment against Ham and his son Canaan for just seeing his father naked like that's I mean I'm still looking to see if there are customs that highlight that that's how they saw it but I don't, I, don't, I don't see, I can't find any yet. So it would have to be that, that him seeing his father's, him naked, was worthy for him to create a, a, a prophetic curse, which Noah, in all, in all essence, it wasn't like Noah had a word from the Lord, right? So this was a prophetic statement that God brought to life. You know, maybe there is a custom they would say just seeing your father's nakedness would incur that, but then why curse Canaan? Why? There's so many things that come with that. And so I think it's, I think the language, the word saw and uncover is incidental to the kind of description and detail that Leviticus is giving of not to do this and how much God punishes that. I mean, because think about how severe that is. Yeah. Saw your father. What if they walked, what if he walked in by, it was like, oh, I saw his dad naked. Hey, man, guess what? Dad's in there naked. <laughs> you know, and then they go in and be like, man, he wakes up, he told me, nigga, what? Your grand, my grandson, I'm cursing, you know? I don't know, I think that's a little severe. <laughs> and, but then when you see what God says in Leviticus 18 and 20, then it makes sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was an sexual and sexual union that you're, that you're displeased with. Because he sets it up, I am the Lord, do not do what they do. do the, and then he lists it, he gets all sexuality. Mm -hmm. All of it, sexuality. Forbidden sexual acts. So. Uh, this question is, why didn't Noah also curse Ham when he cursed Canaan? So that's a great question. I think that's one a lot of people have thought about and pondered. And then obviously the Bible doesn't give us an answer, but we'll, we'll, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> I think by cursing Canaan, you curse Ham. Like, if you hurt my son, you hurt me. So I think it's still a dad, right? I mean, he's a wicked dude, obviously, but it's still a dad. And, and, the, and the thing, here's what I do know. And I don't know if this, what I'm about to say, stretches back to the Noahic scene because the, Israel wasn't established yet. These were people that had loose, they kind of had sort of intuitive morals, right? People were calling on the name of the Lord, but there was no law. So there was intuitive morals. So I don't know if what I'm about to say stretches back to that. But... You know, it's, it's, it's a custom within the Israelite community to even have names for your children before they're born. I mean, we see that on some occasions where angels are saying, hey, John, call, call Zechariah, call him John. Mary, call him Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So there's names that people have before they have kids, which is a customary call. And then there's, you know, there's people name their children and after the things they want them to accomplish or become. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't. We don't name our, but every parent wants their children to accomplish and become great. And so even Cain, you know, he's naming his son the city, right? Naming a city after his son, all this stuff, right? So there's an idea that as a dad, you want your children to prosper. So now my dad is telling me that my son, and I think it's the son, there's no proof of this, right? There's no proof that it was the son of the sexual union between him and his mom. That's pure shooting from half court. And we'll find out when we get to heaven if we made it. But the speculation is worth it because we know it's a sexual union. 
there's no reason why he would curse Canaan unless you're going to make the case that Canaan was alive when it happened, which we don't know. We don't know if he was. We don't know why Canaan and not his other son. Because Ham had, because if you go by the, the way that the names are listed out, uh, Canaan was the fourth son. You had Egypt was first, Cush was second, Put was third, and then Canaan. And that's how they kind of name them in the orders they came, right? So Cain is the fourth. Like, what would it be? So again, there's so many things that the Bible doesn't make clear. So we, we take it from these other things and say, oh, okay, this is why I think it is what it is. So I, yeah, I don't, you know, the Bible doesn't intuitively answer it. But I think when you curse someone's son, you curse them. And then also, too, you know, at this point, Ham is probably older at this point. Like, I mean, it's like, your children are your lifeline, right? Eventually, it's not about you. It's about who your children become. That's huge in Israelite community. That's why they always call them like such and such, son of such and such, right? There's such a connection to that your children are sort of your life. And this is Abraham's whole point, like, man, I don't have any offspring. I have to make a slave my offspring. Like, you've given me nobody. Like, I don't have anyone. To, and that's why when he did have uh, Ishmael, he loved him. Remember, it says in Genesis 17, oh, Lord, if you would just accept Ishmael. And he was like, no, 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 because it's going to be from Sarah. That's when he finds out, oh, you gonna, Sarah's going to get her pregnant? And Sarah laughs. says, ain't no way I'm getting pregnant. I'm, my biological clock didn't stop ticking, right? So she laughs, and the Lord said, why did she laugh? And she was like, I ain't laughing. He said, no, you did laugh. It's my favorite line in the scriptures. No, you did laugh. You know what I'm saying? Sarah ain't say nothing else. She was like, man, let me. So I, you know, I just think that, yeah, you curse Ham, you, you curse Cain, and you curse Ham, and by default, curse the son. This question uh, is also about uh, curses, and this one is, are there implications of generational curses for us now? You know what's interesting about that? So... Jesus, the God said that, that he brings judgment to the, to the sons of the fathers and stuff like that, right? But then in the new covenant, he says he no longer does that anymore. So most people think that generational curses are pretty much gone, right? Which I think, based on what the Bible says, I, God's not holding people to the sins of their fathers anymore in the same way. However, in 1 Peter 1, here's what he says. He says this. He says, verse 17. They don't have this on the screen. I didn't give him this because it's Q&A. But he said, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18 of 1 Peter. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, mm -hmm. but with, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, right? So he's basically saying you've inherited feudal ways, ways that don't, from your forefathers, right? Mm -hmm. so, it's, so if it's not a generational curse, he's saying in 1 Peter, you've inherited particular ways that are not helpful, they're not good, they're feudal, from your forefathers. So if God does away with generational curses, like he does say, I'm no longer going to hold in, in the Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, I'm no longer going to judge the the sons according to the sins of the father, you still do inherit feudal ways from your fathers, right? 
So I don't know if generational curses exist, but you inherit habits and practices and things that are not helpful. And so he's telling them, listen, this is what you got from them. I think it's possible that we do the same thing. That's a great question. This question is, um, is Jesus using the water to punish mankind and then using water for salvation? I think they mean it's God. Um, for salvation, is that a parallel to the cross being a form of punishment and Jesus making it a sign for salvation? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you could say that. I mean, the, the thing you have to understand is Jesus is the living water, right? So Jesus, it, throughout his ministry, talks about that, like, I'm living water, I'm not. The reality of water coming out of, so you get the blood and water. I'm going to say this, and then we, I'm going to hold off on the rest of this part because we'll wait till we get there. But you got to think about the blood and the water, right? This goes right back to Exodus, right? Water turns to blood, the first plague, right? So there's a direct connection here that, that the water and blood come out of the body of Jesus in the judgment and salvation. Water turns to blood is the first plague connected to that, right? That's, that's where judgment is coming, but eventually the salvation of God's people, Egypt, later on, right? So there's a lot going on. We'll, when we get to the plagues, it's going to be spooky in here. But <laughs> it's crazy. So the Lord's doing crazy stuff. And I can't wait. I've been waiting for the plagues since we started. I was almost going to skip all this and just go to the plagues. But, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of connections there, right? So the judgment is Jesus is the living water, and God is essentially you know, punishing Jesus, the living water, for our sins and then using baptism. Baptism becomes a means in which we go under the water. That's, so they connect it to salvation in Noah. So the cross is definitely the punishment of God. But I think in the, in the, in the analogical sense, it's God punishing living water instead of using water to punish like he did in the, in the, the flood. And it's just incredible when you think about it, like, wow. That the living water, the water, God said, I'm not going to punish the world anymore through water, but I'm going to punish living water for the world. And it's just fascinating to me. It blows my mind every time. So I don't know if that answers the question, but if it doesn't, just get back to me. All right, this next question uh, is related to baptism, and, and the person is wondering how the people who were baptized by uh, John the Baptist um, why they responded to John if there was no practice of baptism in the Old Testament. So you got to remember, right? Remember when they came to John and they said, are you the prophet? Right? And he was like, no, I'm not. Right? Even the Pharisees, are you the prophet and why are you doing this stuff? Mm -hmm. So John the Baptist was essentially unlike any figure they'd seen in modern Israel of that day. They had no, so he was coming out. I mean, they said <laughs> I don't know how he looked, but they just said, man, this dude was eating wild locusts and honey. I think he was just wild. And he was just out there preaching and drawing the crowd. And you got to remember, this is God saying, I'm sending him in the spirit of Elijah to, to prepare people for Jesus. So God is blessing what he's saying. So people are hearing John and they're like, man, is this the prophet? Now, the reason why they're asking, is this the prophet? Because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that one day a prophet is going to come like I have and you shall listen to him. So they're waiting to see who that prophet is. They understood it wasn't a prophet like Elijah. They understood that that meant someone like Moses with the authority of Moses is going to show up. And so here comes John 
who's just preaching with power and people are being convicted and he's baptizing people in water. Remember, he was there to prepare people to be baptized in Jesus. Right. So so I think he was he was getting momentum because God was with them and baptism became the, the mechanism that's connected to salvation, which I think was intentional by God to look back to all the other times that water and judgment and all that were used at the same time. You had judgment and salvation happening at the exact same time in the flood, in the Red Sea, and on the cross at the exact same time. Judgment's happening and salvation at the same time. It's incredible. So yeah, I think John the Baptist was just, hey, you're with God, and, and I think this would led to him being confused when he got locked up. It's like, man, what am I, is Jesus the Messiah or what? Like, what am I doing locked up? I don't know if that makes sense. I'm all over the place. All right, this next question is, um, did God flood the earth with a canopy of water hovering over the earth? So, you know, the way that the world looked back then could look vastly different than now. When you look at Genesis, it says that there was water there, and then God creates an expanse of water in the sky, right? Now, most people think that, oh, he just created the sky with the ability to rain, but there's credible to, with the language and the way that it uses, and then the flood, it comes from above, right? Like, there's, credible, there's a credible, I think, perspective that says that there was water on the earth and then some sort of visible, noticeable water in the sky that m maybe was what, how it rained, that God used it that way. But then after the flood, I think he was like, all right, I'm doing away with that. So I think that there was something that came from the sky, which possibly was when God separated the waters. And so there's one that, and he made one in the sky and kept one on the earth, and the water was called sea, and then the land was called, the non-water was called land. Whatever he put in the sky, I think, was there as, a, as sort of the, reason, the way, the mechanism in which the flood's going to take place. I think so. I don't think our sky, the sky looked the way ours does now. And when we have a thunderstorm, it's just a cloud. I think at that point, before, I think after that, some changes happen. And we don't, the Bible doesn't always say what they were, but. All right, so that concludes the questions that we're asking today. If you have a question that wasn't asked, please do see Pastor Kurt uh, after communion. All right, so we are done with the flood. And next up. Tower of Babel. Boy, oh boy. All right, if you haven't gotten your communion yet, let's get that. Let's remember, we're not here because of the flood or because of the Tower of Babel or because of Enoch. None of it. We're here because of what Jesus told, presumably told, the spirits in prison. We're here because he became a human being, the living water, who punished the world because of sin, was now punished for the world because of sin. It's that Jesus. It's Jesus whom we, we gather together for. If we didn't do anything but gather and sing, it would only be because Jesus. No one is here because of me or anyone else. We gather together because of Jesus. And we take what, what he instituted as something that he told his disciples to remember him by. And we, by default, those who are believers of Jesus, continue to do this until he returns. Now, 
In our church, we are, Mike told you, our first value is to love one another. We welcome people. We're grateful for people. We love people. We'll sit here and talk to you, hang out with you, invite you to lunch, all that afterwards, right? We love people. We love to include people in what we do as a church. But what we're about to do now is not our decision. It was what the Bible says, that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're not supposed to do this because it's supposed to be for people who are remembering, reminded of his sacrifice his death on the cross and his blood that was shed for them. So this isn't to shame anyone if you don't believe in Jesus, not at all. We're just trying to be faithful to what we think the Bible teaches. So this is the only part of the service that we'd ask you not to participate in. But other than that, if you want to, if you have any questions, there are people with name tags on that are on the welcome team. They can answer your questions. I'll be here. Mike will be here, whoever it is. Anyone, you can talk to anyone. But that's the only part that we'd ask you not to participate in because it is reserved for those of us who do believe in Jesus. Now, for those of us that do believe in Jesus, we have the privilege of doing this every week. And even if I'm just off my rocker and don't know what I'm talking about up here, the one thing that we do know that's true is this and what this represents. So if I'm wrong in every single thing I said, sorry. But this, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? Well, it's not like I'm up here like, let me just make this up, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I'm not up here making stuff up. But the reality is I can still be very wrong, right? This is never wrong. This is the one part of our Sunday experience that's never wrong. The reason why we're doing this is that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you and I would not be like the spirits in prison awaiting further judgment. So we eat this together. And for the exact same reasons, we drink this together. Father, I'm grateful that you led us to do communion every Sunday so that, again, whoever's speaking, if we have no idea what we're talking about, we know we're going to end this time together remembering you, remembering what you've done, remembering what you've said. But, Lord, I do pray that, that there was something truthful spoken today that we would be further affected by your grace from your word. And as we continue to move beyond and hit Tower of Babels and other narratives, that we see what you're doing, that we, by your grace, would continue to grow in an endless fascination with your word. May that never, may we never grow so familiar with what you've done that we grow unaffected by how we live, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray, amen. amen. All right, don't forget you got core groups. You, got, uh, uh, you can sign up for Our Mother Ourselves. That's a great, going to be a great group, a great book. You got the craziest group in the church, Chris's group, that talks about the Sunday sermon. They meet here on Tuesday nights in a double classroom. They, did, they bring Ouija boards and all that, so all that stuff is happening. I'm kidding. I ain't saying sort of on that one either. We ain't doing no. But don't forget to sign up for groups. And uh, if you have not registered for the retreat, in the, in, the, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you and register for the retreat so that we can do because I'm making the deposit this week so we can get going. And anything else, keep focused, keep praying, and know what's going on. Stay focused, be grown and own. Look at the app, see what's going on. Don't always wait for an email. Send us an email for a change and tell us what, did you, what you're not waiting for. 
We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Love you guys, and we'll see you when we see you.